Hey there, thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're live in Washington, D.C. Burke Allen here. And the program is service of our friends at speakermatch.com. That's the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. So if you're a speaker or you're a meeting planner, visit speakermatch.com's virtual marketplace and come together, whether it's for a virtual speaking engagement or an in-person conference coming up later this year or in 2021, speakermatch.com is the place to be. We're talking entertainment and showbiz and perhaps the lack of it right now because of the pandemic and the shutdown. Leith Burke, who has the best last name ever, welcome to the (laughs) Burke Allen Podcast. How are you, sir? Why, thank you, Burke. It's a pleasure to be here, man. Thanks for showing some interest. From one Burke to another, it's great to have you. And and we got to start with the the name. So, so you know, I I have a backwards name, Burke Allen, which could go either way. What do you know about your family name, Burke? So it's uh, it's it's Scottish. It's actually Leith Manford Burke the second, and it's my father's name. Uh, and uh, and he he's from Jamaica, and it was a it was a family friend, uh, a Scottish sailor that my grandmother knew in Jamaica, and she named my father after him, and uh, my father passed it on to me. So it's Scottish, although I've never been there. It's on the list. Hopefully, once all these things open up, I'll be able to take my pilgrimage back to Scotland and knock on some doors and be like, hey. I'm I'm a Burke too. <laughs> hey, you got to so, wear a kilt if you go, though. That's the thing. You got to wear the kilt. Well, and they have they actually have you know right outside of uh, Edinburgh there is you know there's a, there's a Loch Leith you know there's a big lake that's right uh, named Leith and and the corresponding town so you know gotta gotta go through there. I always know I always know when I'm meeting uh, a Scotsman because when I introduce myself they don't blink at the name. They don't need a repetition. I just say, hi, I'm Leith. And they say, hey, Leith, you know, and I know, oh, you must be Scott because it's, it's a very common name there. Otherwise, they're asking for a pronunciation guide to your first name. Exactly. Is it Leith? Is exactly. it what? Who are you? <laughs> so, so tell me about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Jersey for the most part. I was born in New York City, and uh, my parents moved out to the suburbs when I was about three. And so did all my, you know, lower schooling there in Jersey. Uh, my father was... A, an accountant for uh, United Artists at the time. And this is the heyday of United Artists back in the 70s and, you know, early 80s. And, and, uh, and you know, so I grew up, you know, going to premieres of films like, you know, all the Rockies and the Bonds and, uh, and you know, even, you know, uh, Tommy, the Who's Tommy, that was United Artists. So I was seeing all these crazy independent films being put out by this really kind of, in my mind, seminal, uh, seminal studio during the independent film movement of the seventies. And so I was exposed and, and another perk because they were really one of the only, only studios that were still based in New York city. So, uh, they were very connected to Broadway as well. Right. So I grew up going to Broadway shows, you know, that was one of his perks. And so I grew up going to Broadway. I grew up watching these great films, even though some of them I didn't understand when at my age, but you know, I was exposed to that world and, and kind of bitten by the bug quite early. Uh, and my father being in the business, you know, didn't encourage me, didn't quite discourage me, but he would not bring home backstage from New York City when he came home from work. I kept begging and begging. I was like, there's this, there's this paper. You got to bring this paper home. It's got auditions, you know. And I was like eight, nine, ten. 
begging him to bring home. I somehow learned about backstage, and he'd just always forget. You know, he'd come home with the New York Post, and I'd be like, did you bring my... And he'd, oh, I just forgot, you know. Um, so he didn't really encourage... He wasn't really thrilled about having a kid who wanted to go into the business. But because, I mean, you know, to his credit, I'm sure he'd seen a lot of the downsides of this business. But, uh, you know, I... I stuck with it. When I went to college, I wanted to get a theater degree and they, they said, look, uh, get anything but, and we'll, we'll help you pay for it, but we can't pay for it. Just get a fallback. And if you come out and you still want to do this, then we're behind you 100%. So I did that. I went to undergrad for, ended up with an advertising degree, closely associated, but, uh, but, uh, and, and then went to grad school for acting and true to their word, they were, they stuck with me a hundred percent. I've never had to use my advertising degree, thank goodness. And, uh, you know, I just went out ever since I went out to grad school in San Francisco at the American Conservatory Theater, spent three years there and, uh, and, uh, kind of just hit the ground running and been at it ever since. Did some time in New York, uh, I've settled here in Los Angeles and, uh, where, you know, I do film and television, some commercial work, some voiceover. I kind of do it all because I'm kind of, you know, I'm just kind of one of those, you know, working, I'm just a working actor. So I do voiceover, I do commercial, I do video games. I do, you know, I try to do stage whenever I can afford to because stage is kind of a passion of, of love when you're out here in Los Angeles. You know, I can, I can be on a commercial set and make what I make doing 10 plays, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I just, I just do it all, you know, keep, keep my feet moving but you know i've i've had a i've had a great you know i've i've done regional theater this 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 job has taken me all over the country uh and uh i've been able to work at some great theaters all over the country and you know and some and been on some great sets from you know shooting it out of a van to you know suburbicon with clooney and the boys and all their toys and you know so High, low, it's all been good, man. It's all been good. Leith Burke, our guest today, is in this great new independent movie called The Eleventh Green from Christopher Munch. And uh, uh, we're talking about uh, movies and television and, and your background. And, and that's fascinating, your dad worked for United Artists, which, you know, as you said as a kid, th- those are great movies for young boys growing up in the 70s and yeah. 80s. I mean, Roger Moore, James yep. Bond movies and Rocky movies, are you kidding me? And, and going to the premieres at that. So even all that glitz and glamour, you know, was, was very, you know, it, it makes an impression, you know, and you know, my, my, my grandmother was a writer. She, my father's mother, she was a writer. Um, so language has always been something that's kind of run through run. It's kind of in the genes. Like we, 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 we take, uh, we take the written word very seriously in my house and always have. So, you know, theater itself was, was an easy leap, you know, uh, the language of theater and the, and the ideas, the ideas in the language and, and being true to the word and that kind of thing. So that was always in me. And, and I really do think, I mean, yeah, sure, there are those who come to it and just kind of stumble into it. But for me, it really has kind of been, I, I, I distinctly remember being eight years old and, and, you know, again, begging my dad to bring home these papers because I wanted to audition, you know, I don't know. And then, you know, the connecting tissue for me was I remember going to see a production at Princeton. I went to go see a production of Godspell. I was in high school, and for some reason there was a trip to go see this uh, Princeton stage production. And there I was at one of the, you know, premier Ivy League universities watching these students at Prince, Princeton up on stage in this great production, and that connected it off. I was like, oh, 
So it's not just, you know, you don't just appear these stars. So like these guys are at one of the most prestigious colleges in the country and they're doing theater. So that, that, that showed me the work. Then I saw, oh, okay, it's not just go out and audition and get lucky. There's actually work involved. And that was a key thing. I saw, I saw the path. And from that point on, then I started looking into actors that I admired. Even, you know, part of the reason I went to ACT was because that's where Denzel went. Yeah. And when I started, when I, when I saw that production and started going, you know, beneath the interviews, such as beneath the people profiles, and say where they don't want to hear about your training and this and that. They want to hear about the glitz and glamour. But then when I started digging beneath that and saw all these people that I admired and dig, dug into their backgrounds and their training, that's where I saw, oh, okay, these people actually worked at this and they studied hard. And, you know, at that time, I mean, we're talking about, again, you know, 80s. You know, it wasn't even the world that we see today where, you know, there, were, there, was, there was Denzel. There were a couple, you know, black action stars or comedians, you know, but there was a handful of guys to look up to who were on the screen really doing it. And literally you know? just and a handful, you know. A handful, five, five guys maybe. And so Denzel obviously stood out at the top of the class, and, and, and I was like, oh, he went to ACT. I guess I'll apply there. And I think I applied to ACT and Yale, and I, don't, I think those were the two. Uh, and I didn't get into Yale, so I ended up at ACT. So. But it showed me the, it showed me the work. And it showed me that it's not some, you know, lucky grab basket thing, you know, and, 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 and that, and that was key to me. And I think it's, and, and to this day, when I step onto a set and, and, and I'm working with an actor and, and we, and we connect on a theater background, it's, 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 there's, there's a, there's a, there's an unspoken, uh, there's a shorthand, you know, because we know what the work is in a different way than, you know, let's just say a, a personality, a, a, someone who comes off of YouTube and is now doing a movie or doing a TV show. Like we, we get the work at a different level and it's just unspoken and easy and breezy. And we, we, we play with each other on a different level than people who don't have that training and background. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, the American theater is, is just such a beautiful fabric. You know, I feel I'm connected to so many actors you know, just by, I, I run into an older actor. I was just, I just did a season of Bosch and, you know, one of the old, they use a lot of old character guys and talking to those old guys who I've always looked up to. I love, you know, I'm getting older now. So now I'm the old man on set, but I love being the young player and I would just gravitate towards the oldest actors in the room and hear whatever they were willing to share because that was so much. And that was the same way when I was coming up through the theater of like, I liked being around the old guys. I was lucky enough to do a play with Maximilian Schell. He was, we were on Broadway doing, uh, we were doing, uh, oh, uh, Judgment in Nuremberg. And he won an Oscar for doing the film as a younger role. And now on Broadway, he was playing an older role. Right. And hanging out with Max, you know, it was just one of the highlights of my life. We would just be off stage and I would, Get, I would get him, he would tell, tell me stories about Montgomery Clift and, you know, just this Hollywood that was just so, you know, magical to me. And he had so many connections and stories and just, I love being around those guys. And that's really, that's, that's, you know, 80% of my education is being around those cats. And when I run on those cats on set and we connect, you know, it takes about three minutes to connect. Oh, you work there. I work there. Oh, you work with this director. Great. You know, and we're done and we're in it and we're, 
off off to the races and it's just a beautiful thing i love the fabric of the american theater and and the connections that i've made there you know uh, people that that watch plays or they watch television or they watch movies uh, you know if it's done right you don't think about all the work that goes into it behind the scenes. And, and as we talked about before we went on the air, look, there's the work that you and I do, and then there are guys that are coal miners that dig coal out of the ground and, and you know, guys that, mm-hmm. that, you know, run heavy machinery. And so so we're very blessed in the kind of work. But but there is work there. And one of the things that has always fascinated me about Theater Cats is, you know, when you do what I do, you have a script. You have a script right in front of you all the time. Mm. But there's an enormous amount of dialogue for you to digest in a very short amount of time uh, overall when you do these theater roles. And, and I always yeah. find it fascinating to, to, to find out how it is that you're able to go off book. You know, how do you do that? Because, you know, I did theater I when I was in high school. It was hell for me. It was so hard yeah. to put that script out. So how do you do it? What's, what's your secret? I think, I think it comes down to fight or flight, really. At the end of the day, <laughs> the, the nightmare of showing up on stage and not knowing your lines just gets you to do it. But it's also, I mean, the real secret is it, it really is a muscle. I mean, just like any other, it's, it's, it's muscle training. And, you know, I, I, there was, there was, I, I worked at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival years ago, and for, I did three seasons there. And one of my seasons, I was doing three outdoor Shakespeare plays, simult in rep. So I, wow. I have three separate plays and, you know, bigger and smaller parts in all of them. I wasn't a huge lead in all of them. I had a bigger part in one and maybe, you know, supporting in another and maybe a smaller, but still it's three plays. And I was terrified. I, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do. And I really didn't know how I was going to get through it. But again, at the end of the day, the fear of not knowing the lines overrides, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, problem you're having you're like it's just got to be done um but once that muscle gets exercised oh it's great because you know when i'm doing a play here in la for example and you're right i've i've memorized this full script just being just having that muscle stretched and exercised then suddenly someone hands me six pages for a tv show and i just i just drink it in one gulp i'm like oh this i can do you know i'm doing shakespeare eight nights a week Hand me six pages of this little procedural thing. Pashaw. I can do that. Pashaw. This is nothing. It's, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is nothing. So I love when that muscle is, but, you know, it atrophies, which is why I still try to stay on stage here at least once a year, because, you know, if you're not using it, it will go away. Yeah. What is the, the biggest misconception you think that, that people at large have about folks that do what you do for a living about actors? I think, as you pointed out, I, I, they don't see the work behind the scenes. They don't see the, you know, I have, I have, I have a couple, you know, they don't see the training. They don't see the work we put in offline. You know, my, my, my job, I, I really describe my job as auditioning, you know, because the actual work, being on set and getting to play and having all the toys and the support that you get when you're, when you're there doing it. I mean, anybody would do that for free. It's a joy. You know what I mean? And sometimes you have to wait this and that. So what you're, you're being catered to and you're in a honey wagon and you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really, it can be quite painless. I mean, sometimes some sets are tougher than others, but anyway, I think the misconception is that, you know, is on the surface, again, going back to a people magazine profile, they, they, they only promote the gravy, you know right. what I mean? They don't promote the, and so, you know, most of my days are spent driving around town trying to get people to like me. And, 
most of those most of those trips all around town and traffic and waiting and being pleasant and keeping your energy up and being in a good mood and being someone you want to have on your team, you know, that energy usually comes back. No, you know what I mean? Like usually yeah. it gets you nowhere. Every, every once in a while you get a gig and I've been fortunate to have fairly steady work, but you know, so that's my job. I spend my days driving around Los Angeles trying to get people to like me. And then, uh, and that's never shown all those wasted hours in the car, sitting in traffic on uh, For those who don't live in LA, man, you don't know what the, what the 10 can be in, in rush hour. But, uh, uh, and, and then as I say to my kids, you know, because I have a, I have an 11 year old who's pretty, pretty well bitten by the bug. She really wants to do it and I can't discourage them, but I, I do try to show them, look, guys, you have to realize that there are a lot of sacrifices in this business. I've missed a lot of weddings. I've yeah. missed a lot of family vacations of like, you guys go, I've got to shoot, you know, I've, I've, I've got to do it. I can't turn this job down. And so my kids not only grow up seeing me uh, doing the work at home, that it's not just show up on set and be pretty, that I, I am at, sitting at the table going over the script work. I let them see what it takes for me, what, what I do to, to accomplish a role. And I let them see that there are, there are sacrifices. Like there are things I don't get to do. And there are things, you know, living an on-call, 24-hour on-call life, because I do, in a sense, work check to check. And, you know, so I'm always on call. I'm always, you know, right. If they call tonight and say, you know, again, I'm in the negotiations right now for a job. They could call me any minute and say, all right, you, you, you have to leave tomorrow at nine and I got to leave tomorrow at nine. Like yeah. I just got to be ready. And that is, that's taxing and tiring. Uh, the uncertainty of this business, not knowing where that next check is growing from, coming from, not knowing, you know, the ground beneath you rarely ever feels stable. I mean, even, even, you know, I'm wise enough now in my years to know, you know, that as you go up in levels, it's just new problems, new levels, new problems. There is no level in this game that you're, that you kick back and relax and say, ah, there isn't. It just, you get to a new level, then you're just experiencing newer high level problems, whether it's finances, whether it's legal issues, whatever it may be. It's just, you know, so there's no, there's, there's no, just as there's no uh, perfectly fulfilled role, we'll never get to perfect in acting. It's one of those art forms. I imagine, you know, like, like painting, and I'm sure novelists feel the same way. Creativity is all one. There's no perfect. No one's ever written a perfect novel. No one's ever painted. Any painter you ask, as great and celebrated as the painting may be, they will see a way they could have made it better. And, you know, it's the same with, thing with acting. We'll never get to perfection. You can only try and fulfill it as best you can. We're always shooting for the stars and we land somewhere between earth and in between. And, and that pursuit, if you don't have the passion for that pursuit, then it's tiring and wearing. And that is something that's not seen. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, some people, if they have some into the business may, may see or if they have friends that do it and have these conversations, but if you don't have any real connection to this business, you would never know, uh, you know, what the day-to-day is like and the stresses of that, that kind of check-to-check life and the, and the instability beneath our feet that is just always there. That rejection. We always feel like, yeah, the rejection. Oh. We always feel like the rejection, I don't even know what you build up for that. I just kind of, I'll, I'll use, you know, I, I was taught long ago, you, you, you go in, 
it's like it's 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 like going it's like it's like going number two. You go in, you flush, you walk out, and you forget about it. <laughs> you know, you don't analyze it. You don't think that could have gone better. You don't think you go in, you do what you got to do. You walk, you flush, and you walk away. If something good comes of it, great. If not, no reason going back on it. There'll be another chance tomorrow. And so you just kind of keep the forward. You keep looking through the windshield as opposed to the rear view rear view mirror. I have a I have a niece in also kind of trying to make the pursuit, and I made that analogy to her. I was like, just look forward. Like the rear view mirror in your car is just there to check occasionally. You look up, you glance, you make sure everything's good back there, but you're always shooting forward onto the next thing, and you just look forward and try not to look back. And that's where the rejection goes for me. That's where I put it. I just like, all right, that's done. Whatever happens, happens. It's behind me. You know, if it catches up with me and brings something good, great. But it's not going to do me in no harm. And that's 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 what I that's how I feel when I go into a room. I leave an audition and I think, well, I didn't embarrass myself. Whether I get the job or not, I know I did a solid job. I'm I know they're not sorry I came in. I didn't you know I didn't stink up the room. <laughs> you know, um, so that's that's the only way to look at that. Yeah. Hey man, I'm I'm glad that you use the rearview mirror analogy with your niece rather than the number two analogy because you know that would be yes. awkward <laughs> at most family gatherings. I think. Exactly, exactly. I use the rearview mirror, but you know, but the other one applies just as well. <laughs> just walk away. Just walk away. Hey, uh, you talked about there being you know essentially a handful of of black actors to look up to mm. as a young guy, and there's been so much talk recently about race, and it's way way overdue mm-hmm. in this country. Um, sure. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, who's black a couple of days ago, and and he talked to me about this this whole phenomena that he was brought up to always feel like you know what you've got to do not only great but you essentially have to do mm. better than your white friends just to get that same look mm. which is a, a, an yeah. interesting thing that that you know a white guy like me would never have thought about and i wonder if it's the same way for you when you're out there auditioning do you feel like you've got to go that extra mile because you're a person of color do you have to be just a little bit mm. nicer a little more pleasant a little more on that's interesting i you know I, I was brought up the same way. Uh, my parents kind of instilled that in me as well. And I found that, you know, when, when, by the time I got out of college and I had decided this is where I was, this is the route I was going to go in, in art, you know, when I, once I chose to an artistic pursuit, I, you know, part of my growing first, part of my going to grad school was, you know, I, and I tell this to my kids too, look, as opposed to the, like, uh, you have to work twice as hard thing. What I do, what I try to tell them is, look, you have to be the undeniable choice. So when I went to grad school, I was like, look, I want to have the kind of resume and training that when you look down, it's undeniable. Like you can't, no one, I want to make sure there's no holes where anybody can look at my resume and go like, oh, well, he's never done. Or, oh, well, look, he he wasn't trained formally. Or, oh, he's, you know, I wanted to make sure it was so solid that that if I was able if I was able to do the work, they couldn't look down at my credentials and find any holes. Right. Thus, undeniable. It's I am the undeniable choice, which I think maybe. So I, but I usually push that to my kids more in, in a sense of not necessarily racially motivated, but uh, but you know just being because it's kind of a competitive sport, uh, the, the job I'm in that. 
you're in competition. This is the Olympics. You live in Los Angeles. You're dealing with the best of the best. You've got to be at the top of your game, and you've got to be undeniable. Your talent and your skill and your resume has to be undeniable. Like, this person's solid. There's no reason. There's no way we can say no. It's just all there. So uh, as far as um, casting goes, I don't feel that way because more or less, for the most part, when I'm going out on a casting, every, I would say maybe 10% of my auditions do I go into a room where it's black and white, yellow, green, purple. Like they just want a guy who's going to be best in the role. Or I've gone in where it's men and women and old and young. You know, they just want the best person for the role. I've done that. And that feels great. I actually love to see that room. But 90, 80, 90%, they're looking for a person of color. So not only am I walking into guys that I see around town, you know, every day. So there's a, there's a camaraderie. We all know each other. There's actually, you know, it took me a while. I did used to go into it as a blood sport. I'd sit in the waiting room and think, you guys are my enemy. You're all here to take money or take, take food from my plate. And I've got to destroy you. I'm going to kill you all. I'm going to, you know, and I had that. That's not any energy to go into a room with. I, I, I grew up. And I finally realized, look, what's mine is mine. What's theirs is theirs. We're all in this together. My brother comes up. Great. He, all, all, ships, all ships rise in a rising tide. He gets it. That's great. Then he's too busy to get the next one. I'll get that one. And we go in. And for the most part, I run into friends and coworkers and comrades. And we're all loose in the room. And we all can genuinely say to each other, hey, man, good luck. Go get that. Even though I just came out of the room for the same part, I look at the I look at my friends and I say, "Go get it, dude, go get it." And I've walked into I've I've gone to auditions and seen friends at the audition and think, "Oh man, I'm not." You know, Bosch is a perfect example. Actually, I I, I when I went into the callback for the role I just did on Bosch, there was a friend of mine that I knew from the Oregon Shakespeare Fest, uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, who happened to be Caucasian. Okay. And I saw this. I see this guy. He was going in right before me. I was passing him on his way in. We gave a quick hug, and then he went in, and I went and sat down, and I thought, oh, that's the dude. I was Because I know this guy. I know how talented he is. I know the look. I know the role. I was like, that's the guy. Like, there's no way you're going to cast me over this guy. So I went in and did mine. I guess I was more loose thinking, like, oh, well, this is going to go to my friend Matt anyway. And, but when I got it, I was amazed that he didn't get the role. He ended up getting another role in the series, but it was a small... But anyway, but... So that was the example. I would thought for sure it was him. It, he was, again, he was a white guy, and so they were very open to casting over there. And and they went another way. You know what I mean? I also feel you bring up what's going on in the country and, and the awareness of what's going on in the country. And for better or worse, it does kind of work as a, you know, I remember when I couldn't, I remember when they started showing interracial couples on television. Even that was a no. And then all of a sudden, interracial couples start showing up in commercials. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, so this is happening now. And now you can't shoot a commercial if there's not some color in there. That's right. Like, there, you, you better, somebody in that commercial better show up with a tan or something. Because <laughs> it just, they, so, so, you know, when you, you know, in a way, we've kind of benefited from, you know, the minds expanding. And it really is, it's what's going on. I mean, I think. And certainly in DC and, but Los Angeles, you know, I go to playgrounds and it's just beige. It's just, it's just, you know, there's all these, you know, there's 
curly hair and everybody's kind of a little bit beige and brown and like it's just this crazy mix and the couples are all mixed and there's two moms and there's two dads and there's you know all these cra- and everybody's at the, and the kids don't give they don't care at careless all. the kid you know they they you know i mean i've got kids you know my kids had friends in preschool who were transitioning like uh, now I, am i behind that i don't know but the fact that that's you know they're growing they're five and six years old and like oh well you know arlo is now mary right like what you know like and and they're just like yeah arlo now now arlo's mary you know or colette is cole and they're just they just don't blink and i'm like well that's crazy again i don't know i'm not endorsing it's what's happening it's not up to me i I don't it's not up to me to endorse or not endorse that's what's happening but the fact that they're being exposed to it at that age and it's just normal, like, oh, yeah, I've had friends who, you know, at five, they're just, they, they're so open. They're so open. And, and you cannot tell me that it's not learned and conditioned behavior, the, the, the troubles that we're experiencing in this country. It's conditioned. I'm watching the kids, man. They don't care. Someone's got to teach them that. They are, it's, not, it's not born in. It's not. Uh, so, you know, I applaud it. And I think in many ways I've benefited from it. And I certainly hope my children will benefit from it. Leif Burke, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by Speaker Match. Hey, looking back through your resume, you did some soap opera work early, and I've always heard that that is an incredible training ground uh, for a young actor. So tell me about your experience doing that that has brought it, you to where you are was, today. Was it good? Yeah, the soap stuff is great because it's so fast. Yeah. So uh, so you got to make – you got to make quick choices and quick connections. And the turn, you know, I mean, I always said that, you know, if, if no one caught fire and literally exploded during a take, then they're going to use it next. So what the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Moving, we're moving. And, uh, and so because of that speed, you're, you're forced to be even, you know, you don't have that leisurely sort of, you know, oh, this, this film has all the budget in the world and we're going to rehearse a few and then we're going to talk about it and then we're going to try this and try that and then we may move things and try that. Take, you've got to make really fast decisions and that's great training for, I think, any artist. Again, you know, it's my belief that it's all one and we're all, all art forms are really in, in my opinion, we're, we're problem solvers. You have a problem that you're trying to solve. You're trying to get something to happen, whether it's a composition on canvas or the right words to string together for a novel or the right, you know, relationships and, 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 and actions in a scene. We're all just trying to get to this, this solution that we have in mind, whether we can get to with our skills or not. So, you know, when, when you, when you're forced, especially as a young artist to make quick decisions and not deliberate, it sharpens your tools. You know how to jump in and be solid and and get it done under pressure because that's the other thing on these sets is it's great pressure to get it done. Time is always ticking. The clock is just tick, tick, tick. We're moving so fast. And so then when you do graduate or, or get lucky enough to be on a big set that has budget and time, it's such a, 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 it's such a luxury. And your work just gets that much deeper. Like, oh, we have a week to rehearse? that's unheard of. Let's do this. And the work just goes so much deeper. So that was the, that was the soap training ground to me. And, and I actually, I, I like working that way. I worked, you know, I will consider 
um, I did the haves and have nots with Tyler Perry in Atlanta. And, you know, Tyler, wow, I'd never worked at a pace like that. He's so fast. And he's on every shot. He's behind the monitors for every single shot. And, and he's moving on and not say, and, and he, and, you know, when I went down there and I'm walking the hallways and I'm looking at all the shots of the actors, only then did I realize, you know, this guy's a casting master. Like the actors that he's worked with from Viola Davis to Idris Elba. And like, when you really look at the casting in his films, he, he, he's a casting master. And I realized working with him, he doesn't really direct much. I mean, I probably shot a season with him and I can count on one hand the times that he came up and, you know, gave me a suggestion, suggestion or direction. For the most part, he left it up to me and whoever I was acting opposite. We'd work on it and rehearse it ourselves. We'd go out and shoot it. He'd say moving on. And oftentimes I'd have to run and catch up to him and be like, are you sure? Did you get the, are you sure we, and he'd say, yeah, yeah, fine. And keep walking. You know what I mean? I would have to run to get his, you know, his thoughts on what just happened. Um, so he trusts us. And that was also a great gift. And that comes from that kind of world of moving quickly. They hire people that they trust. They're like, I hired you to do this. So do it, you know, like, and to circle it back to training. One of the things I was taught at ACT was my master acting teacher said to us, we're teaching you to be director proof. You won't need a director. Cause we would say to him, yeah, but this is so hard. We've got to figure it out ourselves. Won't we be, won't we have a director to tell us this stuff? No, you cannot rely on that. We're training you to not need a director. If you have a director who's, who's actually on it and good, that's a luxury. Good for you, but don't count on it. We're teaching you to be able to do it for yourself and by yourself. And that was golden training because directors aren't always, they don't always know, you know, that's interesting. It's an interesting so way to look at it, for sure. And and I would imagine mm-hmm. that that probably was helpful to you when you did, uh, you know, all those guest shot roles in, on TV shows. You, you know, obviously you've you've been a series regular now, uh, quite a bit. But prior to that, when you parachute in and these other people have their relationships down and they kind of have their thing down, and you're coming in completely cold. I mean, that's got to be a whole different kind of feeling and a whole different kind of pressure, huh? And the soap thing trains you for that, too. As I said, you make quick connections. So I know how to land on a moving train. They've been going, you know, 60 miles an hour for months, and they all know what's up and what's going, and they've got their connections, and they know everybody in hair and makeup, and I've got to show up and seamlessly integrate my character into that train that's already moving 60 miles an hour. Right. And that kind of soap training, making those quick connections and decisions, you know, can 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 allows me to do that seamlessly and and yeah again you know that's that's training and you're right it's a whole it's a different it's a whole different ball of wax jumping onto that train and and being able to connect back to the fabric of american theater sometimes you step on and you know the person you're opposite also has a theater background so it's like oh we got that boom let's go and you know so uh so yeah and that's and I mean, I like so much of it. I, I like that too. You know, you jump on these stranger sets and you get to see how other people work. And some people are, you know, some people are real loose and don't like to rehearse and just kind of let's just go for it. Shoot the rehearsal because I'm, I'm all, I'm going to get it in one or two. So you better have it in the can. Um, some people really like to know what's going on in the background and, you know, you're in the van going over there and like, okay, so why are we, and these are, you know, I'm a guest and they're the series regular, right? So why are we having this conversation? Yeah, but what just happened before this? And, and they really dig and dig in. 
And, and I love that, you know, I'm like, Oh wow. I like the way you work. This is interesting, you know, and you learn and you learn from all these, it's, 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 it's fascinating to me. And also if it's not fascinating to you again, don't, don't do this because if you're not getting all those little thrills, it's not a paycheck. No one, you're, no one's in this for the paycheck. Right. Some people get lucky. Some people get born. There are, I do believe stars are born, you know, when you're, when you're, when you, when you meet George Clooney, you know, when you, when you look at a guy, when you, when you're face to face with even, you know, Josh Dashamel, I always mess up his life. When you look back at, when you shake that guy's hand and look at him and you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. You're a star, dude. When you meet Clooney, you're like, oh fuck yeah. You're not even human. You're like, like, I don't, and it's not, and it's not, it's not the looks. It's an inner thing. It's an inner thing. My wife uh, did some function where Colin Farrell, you know, was at the function. She said, I have never been attracted to Colin Farrell in my life. That man walked by, didn't say a word to me. You got it. Boom. Like, it's, it's a thing. Star is a thing. That's why they're separate. They're celebrities. Yes, they're popular, but there are stars. And that is born. And, and, and that's fine, you know, but anyway, none of, none of us get into it for the money. Some people get lucky and make a fortune, but most of us are doing it because I like to be on set. I like to talk to people. I like to see how other people, you know, problem solve as the way, as opposed to the way I problem solve. I like the camaraderie, the family of it, you know, this COVID thing, I don't know. It's going to change how that all works for a while anyway. And some of the changes will be permanent for sure. Um, and, you know, I really hope that no matter what the change, the lasting changes are, that that sense of family and camaraderie, I like, you know, there's the, the, the theater is the same way of you, you get this, you get this, you know, rogue family for a certain period of time, you know, and you connect and, you know, they're like cousins and uncles and, you know, little nieces and nephews sometimes. And, you know, you get this little family and then it just, you know, dissolves and you get used to that. But when you have that little family, it's fun, you know? And so that's why we're in it. We're in it, you know, we're in it. We get to travel. We get to, we get to sleep in quite often, except when we're working, when we got to be there at 435 in the morning. But, you know, on the rest of the days, we get to, we get to stay up late and wake up late if we have to, you know, and uh, there's, so there's freedom in it too. And it's all those little perks. That's why you do it. You know, life is good to be Leith Burke. And especially right now, you're on a show called Eastsiders on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And, and there's Mm -hmm. this thing that I've heard about called an Emmy nomination, and that Emmy nomination has your name on it. So, Well, you know, I had to ask, yeah, I had to ask myself when I started, I, it happened, I started getting congratulation texts and emails, and I was like, what are we talking, what, what? Congratulations for what? And somebody shot back, you were nominated for an Emmy. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? Couldn't wrap your head around. It means you're nominated. Means you're nominated for an Emmy, and this is in the middle of COVID. I mean, this was like March, you know, middle of the shutdown. I was like, and I had no idea. I mean, I, you know, the the show Eastsiders started as a web series, but the season that I started on it, the second season, it got picked up by Netflix, so it went from a little more than a web series. I wasn't on the web series part, but, you know, by the time it got picked up on Netflix, I was on it, but it was still small. And, you know, it had, you know, some weird, you know, DVD distribution, but it was really just a product. It was, again, it was a passion product project. I, I, you know, I submitted myself. It was, you know, very low pay. Like it wasn't, 
there was really no money involved. It happened to be local in the neighborhood that I lived in in LA. I think, you know, my drive to set my, a long drive would have been 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, so, and it was, you know, being independent. I like doing independent stuff because there's this sort of like one for all and all for one. And, you know, we're, we're kind of gorilla-ing it. And there's this energy that everybody's infected with. If everybody's down, you know, then we're running around. There's this energy through it. So I was doing it for that. I was like, I'm not doing anything. I'll do this thing. It was super, I, I, I told a friend, I was like, thanks for the congratulations. They were well-deserved. I was like, look, between you and me, there was no acting involved. I subbed, instead of a wife, I had a boyfriend. That was it. I just substituted, <laughs> you know, well, I, I'm going to talk to him and deal with him the same way I do with, with my wife. I'm just pretending, you know, love is love is love. And that was it. The rest of it, you know, I just, I just learned the lines and did it. There was no digging up my dead puppy or, you know, the passing of my father. I didn't have to go to any dark. It was, no, it was so easy and lovely and so loving and felt so, you know, close-knit. And so to get recognized for that was really a triumph. I mean, I got a kid, there was, there's, I got a, uh, Instagram message from a kid in Brazil the other day. He said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a Brazilian. I'm 17. I'm gay. I want to be a doctor. I want to find a partner who wants to adopt children. The show has meant so much to me. He showed me that there's hope and light and, and man, I'll take that over an Emmy any day. That was it. That, that kind of note is exactly why I do what I do. If I can shed some light and some love and some understanding in this world with my, with what I've chosen to do with my profession, that's, that's it. You know what I mean? The other thing I'll say about that is they always come when you're not looking anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think when I was, you know, in my twenties, I was, I was probably practicing my Oscar speech, you know, in the mirror you know, on a weekly basis. So, oh, so what am I going to say? What am I going to wear? Don't forget to thank, don't forget to thank your wife, all those things, you know? And, uh, I stopped doing that long ago. I was like, you know what? An acting cop, there's no sense. An acting competition doesn't even make sense. Like there's no best. There's so much good. I mean, it makes, it's ridiculous to vote on a performance. It's ridiculous. There's no best. There's, there's less, con- like maybe if we were all doing the same role, I could see that. I could see, all right, you all get to do a monologue from Hamlet. Go. You know what I mean? And then we're going to vote. Then you have a competition. But judging peers on different challenges, you know, the roles are different. But there's no acting. There's no, it, it doesn't make sense. There's no, again, it's really, I'm, I'm grateful to be nominated. I'm glad somebody, you know, took notice. And I'm, I'm thankful for the nomination uh, again. I, I let it go at that. You know, if I get a, if I get a trophy in the mail, because now there's no ceremony, if I get a pretty trophy in the mail, I'd, I'd love that. That would be a beautiful thing. But to me, you can't, it's not even fair. It, it doesn't make sense to judge acting in that way. But see, this it, is good though, because now sense. I can say, you know, my Emmy nominated friend, Leith Burke has, uh, is coming over for dinner. You know, I could drop that liberally for you on hey, your behalf. It, that's what my management said. They said, look, it, 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 it adds some class to your pitch. You know, you know, you're from now on, you're you're Emmy nominated, that's so we right. can add that to when, when we're pitching you, we can throw that in there and and that. But that's he's he's like, yeah, that's that's about it. Ride it out. Good luck. You know, hopefully you get a nice trophy, and that's the way I'm looking at it. I'll let the I'll let you know. Luckily, I I, I consider that stuff fodder for the team. You know, that's for that's for the publicists and all those people. Knock yourself out. Run with it. There you go. Uh, hey, listen, this yeah. movie, this the Eleventh Green. Uh, mm-hmm. saw it blew my mind. This is, 
uh, from this independent filmmakers, sort of an auteur in that world, Christopher Munch. And, and it's very difficult to describe, but let's just say it's this mind-bending sci-fi thing that uh, takes you sort of across the space-time continuum. Um, you play a president who is very much like President Obama, although he's not <laughs> they don't use that name in the movie. Very well put, yeah, um, exactly. And and uh, I wonder what your impressions were of the movie. Have you seen the finished movie yet? Or just your... your I have. Stuff? Yeah? No. Right before shutdown, I think February, we were able to have a screening at the Palm Springs International Film Festival. So I drove up to see that uh, with Chris and my wife. And so I did get to see it on a big big screen, um, which was... And with, a, and with a crowd, you know? I, I was in a packed theater live bodies and big screen. So I'm very grateful that we got that in before COVID shut everything down. Uh, so yes, I have seen it. And, and I was really, you know, I didn't, as you say, I really love, I loved the script. Um, I thought Chris and, and Chris was very open to collaboration. We did have a little rehearsal process where we met and went over because as you pointed out, it's a film. There are a lot of ideas packed into, you know, almost a thrillerish framework as well. But it's 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 almost like this thriller with big ideas, and so so and and then you're dealing with flashbacks and historical actual historical, um, not only footage but but um, you know historical occurrences that Chris, who is one of the most brilliant filmmakers, people, not even as a filmmaker, he's just one of the most brilliant artists I've ever had the pleasure of working with. He's he's a walking. I mean, his depth of knowledge on any subject from the type of collar that my shirt should have, huh. like huh. literally, literally I was, that was the one that really blew me away at the fittings. You know, we came out to show Chris certain looks and suits and, and he said, well, the, the collar, I can't even repeat it because it went it was so fast and on my head. Well, he would wear, you know, a uh, uh, Windsor content and the tie should be tied this way. And I was like, how do you, wait, you know everything about aliens and fashion? And what, <laughs> what do you, who are you? And uh-huh. so he was great to work with. Um, and so I was really curious. Even I love the script. Um, he, was, he explained it to us thoroughly. But it's, I knew it was still going to be a trick to pull off. It's always like, well, sounds good. Let's see how you, if you're able to execute. Yeah. And so when I saw it, I was like, wow. I mean, I always knew that it was going to be a niche film. You know, it's not for everybody. You need somewhat of a... You need, a, somewhat of an interest level, and B, somewhat of an open mind, you know, because it's not trying to convince you of anything. You have to have some sort of, you know, open mind to the subject. I, I always figured it would, it would be a great cult film, and I know that people of like mind, you know, in there's a huge community open to these ideas, which we haven't addressed, which is really about is the fact that, you know, we have been visited and, and that, that extraterrestrials have had an influence on human life on Earth as we know it for decades, if not centuries. But it's, it's certainly known to the government, and the government you know, basically has knowledge that it has not shared with the public. And so if you're open to that idea, you're going to find this film and you're going to love it. Uh, so I think it's going to have a great cult following. I hope it has more than that. I hope other people are open to the ideas. And I was amazed with the way I thought he pulled it off I thought he pulled it off beautifully and, uh, and, and, and very, there's some really subtle things of relationship wise of, you know, that deal with Campbell's character, Campbell Scott and, and his love interest, uh, Agnes, you know, 
even handling something like that because there is an age difference, um, but it doesn't come off. It's, it's, it's very delicately handled, and, and, and I think expertly so because of the performances and also Chris knowing, you know, even though, you know, they're like the, the trope is you see this man and woman, and you're like, oh, well, they're obviously going to be together, and what's going to come of that? Uh, they handle it in a way where, yes, it's natural that they come together a little bit, but they're both wary. It's not an let's all just throw passion to the wind sort of, it never comes off as creepy of like, Oh, he could be her uncle right. or, you know, it's, it's just, and she's not a teenager. Don't get me wrong. Anybody listening. It's not, it's not inappropriate. It's certainly not inappropriate by Hollywood standards, but in the time that we're in, everybody's sensitive to this. You know, even Campbell had said, you know, eh, is this going to come off right? You know, um, but to Chris's credit, the way it's edited and the way it was shot, it's, you know, even that. So he had a very delicate hand and not just, the ideas, but also the performance and the, and the way he cut it with the social ideas. I think it's really, you know, I had some, I had some questions or, uh, my wife, I knew the script and had talked to Chris. I didn't have as many questions, but you know, the drive home with my wife who had never seen it and didn't read the script. She had some questions of which I was cool with and glad I could answer them. Um, and I like a film that, you know, my favorite films are the ones you walk out of and you go and you go and have a drink or you go and have a meal with the folks that you saw it with and you discuss. Right. As opposed to mainstream fare, which is why I was so excited to work with Chris is because I went back and I, while when we were in negotiation, thinking about it, talking about the project, I went and watched uh, uh, one of his previous films and I was so, it was, uh, it was Big Man, I, I forget, but he has a film that deals very lightly with Sasquatch or, yes. or, uh, you know, yeah, and, letters from the but big his man, touch yeah. it, letters from the big man. And I, I was watching and it was so unsensational and it was so kind of un Hollywood in a way, like the way they he dealt with the subject matter, you know, again, Sasquatch, extraterrestrials, alien technology, these things are all so, you know, you know, Independence Day, and, you know, it's always this big sensational war of the world, and it's like, you know, he handles these things like, hey, let's get past the sensational, because his point being, and part one of the points of the film is they use this sensational, crazy, you know, this big war of the world and Independence Day and, you know, all this crazy, that's part of the problem. We sensationalize it to make it look so crazy and like this could never happen imagine if this happened that that's that's just in, you know like and so that's the way that we look at it like that's crazy that could never happen oh my goodness look you know and he handles these subjects with like well what if it was just this what if they it just is and there's nothing to laugh at and it's nothing sensational and no one's threatened and it's just it just is like have you ever thought of that and that's really i think one of the big ideas of the film of like, you know, part of the shielding is that exact sensationalism that in the film it's referred to as the giggle factor of like, let's go on talk shows and laugh about it and make fun of it. <laughs> well, I can't tell you, you know, there's a segment in the film, not giving anything away that, uh, where, where, um, my president <laughs> goes on, goes on a talk show and, uh, and, and the question is asked and I'd never, realized it but there is a history i think i forget how far back in presidencies uh kimmel especially really has an interest in this right and he's had i think uh, at least i know at least going back to bush well he hasn't been on that long so going back to bush 
each president that he's had on, he's got Clinton, Bush, Obama, each, each president that he's had on, he asks this question. And to go back, you know, as part of the research, I went and looked at all these presidential answers to his question. And to watch these guys deal with that question is pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, the question are, about UFOs and, and extraterrestrials. Yeah. You haven't, yeah, seen the movie. That's right. Yeah. He asks all the, you know, the, the our, at least our former three, all the same question. And to see them kind of, uh, well, mm, you know, and to see, and, and again, you know, these are professionals. They're present. You know, they know how to speak professionally. And to see some of them as they choose their words, how they choose their words, what they let out, what they don't let out. Um, none of them deny. Not one of them says, no, 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 ha, ha, ha. Really? Move, next That's question. interesting. No, not one of them denies. Not one of them. They all, they all kind of make sort of a funny aside, you know, uh, including, you know, 44, uh, President Obama. He, he makes sort of a witty aside. But it's said in a way that, <laughs> you know, it's, he, it, it's almost as if he knows, well, if I say this, they're going to laugh. But it's also really true. And I can get away. I'm not lying. And it's going to pass, you know, I'm, I'm not letting out any huge secrets, but I'll get a laugh and we can move on. And it's really, it's really very interesting just, uh, just as a, as a parlor game, those of you that have, or, or maybe this will help you to see the film, just Google those Kimmel interviews with the presidents about UFOs. Kimmel presidents UFOs. That would probably get you there. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. The movie is The 11th Green. It opens with a theatrical at home release, uh, and, and it will be on a few screens around the country as theaters gradually open back up. Very unique film. And before I let you jump, I do have to ask you about portraying this very Obama-like president. And and I mean mm-hmm. very Obama-like president. Yes, it, it he was, was. It was so interesting to me when I watched this movie um, – for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, it, it, it's not, as you said, it's not an Independence Day, bam, shoot em up, popcorn movie where you leave and you kind of forget all about it 90 minutes later. It's one of those movies you're going through it going, ah, I don't know about this, but then it stays with you. And one of the reasons, Leith, that it stayed with me was your portrayal of the president um, because mm. it was not a caricature at all. You know, you, you oh. weren't, you, you know, uh, sticking it up like you're playing them yeah. on Saturday Night Live. It wasn't that at all. And yet, man, did you have the the voice ticks yeah. and the mannerisms. Oh, man. They were just perfect. I, and I wonder how you did that. It was so good. I can't, appre- I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing that because, honestly, it was a little bit of an experiment for me because I, you know, I, I do have naturally – I, I do carry a lot of similar vocal patterning. I, and then I do bear a, a, a fair resemblance when I have the right haircut and I'm in a suit. His whole presidency, you know, if I showed up in a suit for auditions or what have you, I would, you know, I would always get it. People I would, would talk about Obama it. Thing. Yeah. So in, in my, in, you know, so in my travels, I knew in my position, my age, where I was, you know, in the hierarchy of the game and knowing my competition, because, you know, I'm in Hollywood. I know most of the guys my age in my standing who are going to get, you know, and I know the effect Obama has on on culture. I was like, all right, so these roles are going to come up and they're going to start popping up. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get looks at least. I'm going to get auditions and I'm going to get offers. 
So I early on, even while I, he was president, I really started thinking about, all right, you're going to have an, you're going to get that opportunity. So let's get ahead of this and figure out what do you want to do? And what I knew I didn't want to do was an, was an impersonation. Right. That was another thing that I would get during his presidency when I was in the suit and people would be like, Oh, you'd be a great Obama impersonator. Why don't you do that? You should do that. And I was like, well, that's not what I do. Um, number one, number two, personally, like when I even imagine it, my stomach would churn. It's, it would be a nightmare to me to go in and try to behave like this other guy. Right. So I knew I didn't want to do an impersonation. I knew I didn't. So by not doing an impersonation, then I'm going to have to avoid, you know, any sort of real time. Like if someone wants to do the hunt for bin Laden, now they don't know everything that went on by, behind closed doors, but a lot of it is documented. And I would have to do actual dialogue that he said in this time or repeat speeches that he made when this, or even the famous when he comes on air, and gives a speech that Obama, that Osama bin Laden has been killed, I would have to do that speech as him. So it would be an impersonation because we're doing real events. Chris's script comes along, and it's all imagined. The only thing that I do or say in, that, in the 11th Green that Obama actually did and said is there's a little piece of a voiceover from a script, that, from a speech that he actually made that I, I, I voiced. But it was actually, you know, he made this that that speech, and then the Kimmel interview that we recreate. Right. And so, and those a few of a, a piece of that is verbatim. So I looked at that because a piece of it was verbatim, and I listened to the speech, the one that I had to recreate. Um, and those were the only two references I made. I consciously avoided any photos. Any I took a photo to a tailor to cut the suit. I said I. My suit needs to look like this. And, um, but other than that, I avoided reference material and research material because, A, in the eight years that I spent with this guy as president, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a black man, you just absorb. I love the guy so much. I just absorbed him. I, I saw enough of him. I watched him so intently and with such adoring eyes that he, I, I just absorbed him. He was in me. And, and I felt like, I mean, from day one, from, from back from the, back from, from the convention, when he spoke at the Democratic National Convention and appeared on the national scene, yep. he touched me in a way that no one, no politician had ever touched me. And I felt it was the first guy that I understood where he was coming from, his mo and not because he was brown, just because of the way he spoke and his sensibilities of what he was a person. I wasn't like, finally, a black man. It was his sensibilities. He's, he's, he's actually, he's, he's biracial. So he's not even black. Right. I mean, he is, but he's a white, he's as white as he is black. Yep. Anyway, I related to him on such a gut level from that day on that I knew he was in me. I'd been observing this guy for eight years solid on the, on the news, on the, on the feeds, on everything for eight years. I didn't need any more homework. I knew he was in me and I knew, what I didn't know would give me room to not improvise, but, you know, so I went with the soul of the guy, which I thought I knew. And I thought if I just concentrate on the soul of the man, which I thought I'd really understood, then everything else would fall into place. And I didn't know I trusted Chris. I said, I, I don't even think I really said it to Chris, but I knew if something was off, I trusted him to kind of tap me on the shoulder or mention something. And, 
And I just trusted myself. I trusted my gut and my instinct. I didn't know how it was come off. I didn't look at dailies. I just, again, I, it was, you know, it was an independent film. I figured I can, I can afford to, you know, and it was hard not to, you know, when I was working on scenes for the next day, I trust me, I wanted to go online and look at some action and look at absorb some stuff, but I, I really stuck to it and said, no, don't do it. Let's see if you're right about this. I really trust, I really trust my instincts and hopefully it'll pay off. And then your introduction to this question, it seems that it did. And, and the feedback that I've gotten from others and even down to the crew, I remember going to a rap party and the, the, some of the crew describing that like, man, when you would walk on the set in that, in that costume and, you know, we grade your hair and, and the whole, when you walked on, we would just look at each other and just be like, there he is. Like he's, you know, I learned this after the fact. Because I'm glad they didn't tell me. I might have gotten cocky if they told me while we were shooting. But which I met, so I never got cocky. I trusted my instinct, and the feedback is coming back positive, which I love because I really and just to, I know we're running out of time, but I got to say, you know, there was there was a film called Boycott, which was about Martin Luther King um, and the Montgomery Bus Boycott, and and I was living in New York at the time and I auditioned for it, and you know I was I was really young, and I. I, I thought, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, and all this onus and, you know, trying to get the vocal patterns down. And I went in and I did an impersonation of Martin Luther King. Right. When the film, when the film came out, it was Jeffrey Wright who played the role, who always, uh, if I lost it to Jeffrey, I'm good. I got no problem with that. Yep. If it was me or Jeffrey, please, I would, I would trust Jeffrey too. Anyway. So I watched this performance by Jeffrey Wright, Masterclass, and and it was he did not do an interpretation. I saw the soul of the man. He didn't try to do the voice. He didn't try to do the inflection. He had the soul of Martin Luther King. He did what he does, which is always brilliant. And that was I took that lesson. I watched that performance, and I said, "There, I learned my lesson." Because I auditioned for the role and went in and did an interpretation or an impersonation, and this guy was doing an, an interpretation, and it was gorgeous. And that was, and I learned from that lesson, and I tried to execute what I'd learned on the eleventh green, and I hopefully it's paying off. And that was it. That's where that's how I figured that out. From again, watching another match. It's uh, it's just amazing. And and it reminded me so much of uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins when he did uh, the movie Mm. Nixon. And he didn't try Mm. to, to, uh, because Nixon would be easy to mimic. Obama would be, you know, relatively easy to mimic and get those vocal voices down. But you didn't do that. And yet you were that guy. And, And the last question I'll ask, and maybe I should ask Chris Munch, the director of this question, why did he not name President Obama Obama? Why did he give him a different name in this movie? You know, actually, I don't, I don't know the full answer to that question. I remember, when we were discussing it, I remember him saying, I remember him pointing out, well, in the script, he's never named. So even in the credits, I am the, the president. Right. Um, and I don't know. It is a better question for Chris, because I don't know if it was legal. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it was personal that he's like, look, I don't want to, because Chris is, a, uh, I mean, again, aside from being a brilliant artist, he's also very, uh, uh, he's got a lot of integrity, and it wouldn't surprise me that 
I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if his answer was along the lines of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to take, you know, I wouldn't want to take that sort of license to imagine what, how a real person would react in imagined circumstances. That is a license I'm not comfortable with. You know, that's because Chris is full of integrity. And I, I bet his answer is more along those lines than legal of, of like, I'm putting, I can't, for me to put a real person is in imagined circumstances is not fair to that real and living person or their family. Well, it certainly so adds a whole name, other level of yeah. the X-Files sort of mystery feeling to the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really I really appreciate your, your those are kind, kind words. Thank you. The film is fantastic. It's the 11th Green. It's available in a theatrical at-home platform, so uh, hit the Internet and check it out, and you can see uh, Leif Burke portray uh, the president along with a portrayal of uh, uh, president eisenhower in there too i don't want to give it all away mm. but if you're into sci-fi Man. you're into uh, you know ufos you're into history of the cold war you're gonna love this movie and and man i loved this conversation thank you for making time oh it was such a great conversation man really enjoyed talking to you and you mentioned eisenhower um george uh george Gerdes, who plays i mean Spot on. I mean, so you got two great, two great presidents on the screen that you should really see. I mean, this guy's Eisenhower is is amazing, and and that was another thing about not watching Obama was that these are two presidents off camera, right? So the Obama that I would watch to study, that's all on camera, POTUS president presenting. You know, this is behind the scenes. So those guys' public faces and private faces are going to be different. The walk's different. The slouch is different. I'm just talking to another another ex-president. You know, I'm a lame duck at the time that was shot, and Ike's dead. <laughs> you know, or Dwight, <laughs> yep. not Ike. Yep. Dwight, Dwight's dead. Um, so you know, we're 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 off the we're off the we're off camera and we're off the cuff, and that's a different that's a different man than the one we see on screen. So anyway, um, yes, it's been a pleasure talking. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and the interest. I hope everybody will go out and see the film. It's really fantastic. And, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll give you some stuff to chew on and not just, you know, it's not, it's not broccoli. It's not just Brussels sprouts, guys. It's got a, it's got a nice little chase thriller. You know, there's some good spy craft going on. So, and a little bit of romance. What, what more could you ask for? It's a great movie, The 11th Green. And hey, man, congratulations on that Emmy nomination as well. Thank you, brother. Thank you very well. You be safe out there, Burke. It's uh, my fellow Burke, Leith Burke, on the Big Time Talking yes. Podcast. Burke Allen here in Washington, D.C. Thank you to SpeakerMatch.com for making the show possible. Go out and make it a great day. Thanks, everybody.